uh, in the, in, when they were building the temporary tabernacles, he actually started enlisting help outside of Israel, right? So he contacted the king of Tyre uh, and, and sought labor and materials from the king of Tyre. Now, Solomon, the reason he contacted him, his name was King Haram, was because he knew that they had the best wood because they had these great forests. And because they had the best wood and the great forest, they also had the most skilled craftsmen with wood. And he, w- he knew that that would be the people he would want to enlist uh, to help him. So Solomon says, basically, I'll pay your craftsmen whatever you tell me to. Which was, you know, probably not the greatest business sense, but, but you know, he had the money to spend. Uh, he said, I'll pay whatever you want me to pay him. And he said, I'll also throw some food in on the deal, which we'll talk about a little bit more uh, as we move on. Now, today one of the biggest things I want to discuss when we get through some of the details is the significance of building this temple in the first place. Why it was so important that they built this temple? Why did they always make sure they had a tabernacle? Why was that so important? And I think we're going to see that there's a great message in the building of the tabernacle and the temple. And we're going to also see that sometimes Israel missed that message, and sometimes today we still miss that message. So that's the brief, quick recap. I don't know how many breaths I took during that, but man, okay. So we're going to dive right in today, and I'm going to back up a little bit to verse 6, and we'll start there. So 1 Kings chapter 5, starting in verse 6. It says, Now therefore command, this is Solomon talking to Haram, it says, Now therefore command that they cut for me cedars from Lebanon, uh, and my servants will be your servants, and I will give you wages for your servants according to all that you say. For you know that there is no one among you or among us who knows how to cut timber like the Sidonians. When Haram heard the words of Solomon, he rejoiced greatly and said, Blessed be the Lord today, who has given to David a wise son over this great people. So Haram sent word to Solomon, saying, I have heard the message which you have sent me. I will do what you desire concerning the cedar and cypress timber. My servants will bring them down from Lebanon to the sea, and I will make them into rafts to go by sea to the place where you direct me, and I will have them broken up there, and you shall carry them away. Then you shall accomplish my desire by giving food to my household. So Haram gave Solomon as much as he desired of the cedars and cypress timber. And Solomon gave Haram 20,000 cores of wheat as food for his household and 20 cores of beaten oil. Thus Solomon would give Haram every year or year by year. Uh, verse 12, then uh, or the Lord gave wisdom to Solomon just as he promised him. And there was peace between Haram and Solomon and the two of them made a covenant. Now. Solomon's wisdom is just so obvious throughout this entire building project. I mean, you can just see how wise he actually was. Because in 1 Kings chapter 5, verses 1 through 12, it's actually kind of describing how Solomon started preparing to build the temple. And he started preparing by getting, you know, making sure he had all the stuff he needed. He had to get all the materials, all the wood, all the stone. He had to get all that. And, and to do that, he contacts, like I said, you know, Haram, the king of Tyre. Right now... Here's some things that I think are really important to understand about about Tyre and Sidon. And they were two cities, uh, they were port cities, but um, these kingdoms were part of what was called the Phoenician Empire, okay? And the Phoenicians uh, were seafaring people, and they were merchants, and they were known for building these great, massive ships, right? So it made sense being a port city, both of them being port cities, that they would be seafaring people and merchants. Uh, Phoenician ships were also... Uh, kind of renowned, people recognized them easily. They were easily identifiable, and, and there's two reasons. First of all, people knew it was a Phoenician ship because it was masterfully built out of the absolute best wood available, and they had the best wood available. But the other reason they always knew it was a Phoenician ship was because they would always carve this big horse's head 
on every ship. And the reason they did that was to honor their uh, god of the sea called Yam. They wanted to honor their god of the sea, so they always had these, these big horse heads on all their ships. So people would see these huge, well-built, you know, masterfully crafted ships with this huge horse head, and they'd, they'd know it was, you know, the Phoenicians. Now, the reason I bring that up is I think people mistakenly think that King Haram was a believer. They think that he believed in Solomon's God, and probably because, you know, he praised God for giving David a son with such wisdom. But the truth is, is that King Haram was a polytheist, which means he believed in many gods. And the reason he praised Solomon's God was it was just another god, you know, and he knew Solomon was familiar with it, so he praised him. And as we move through this, we're going to see that he just, he wasn't a believer, he was just someone that was working well with Solomon. So the Phoenicians were also known for having these massive forests that had all the best wood. If you wanted good wood, if you wanted the best cedars and all that, you had to go through the Phoenicians. And they didn't just build wooden ships. They were kind of the first people that built wooden homes. A lot of homes back then were made from brick and things like that. They actually had wooden homes at a time when no one really had wooden homes. Now, all that being said, here's what they were not known for, and this became an advantage for Solomon. They were not known for farming or livestock. And the reason is, they may have had the great forests, and they may have been a seaport city, but their land just wasn't good for farming. And it wasn't good for, for raising much livestock. It was just really a bad area to farm and to raise livestock. So they actually became really dependent on the nations around them to provide their food, their, especially the agricultural aspect of that. They had to depend on other nations. And one of those nations that they had depended on in the past was Israel. Okay? Now Solomon, you can see the businessman in, in him here because he knew that they didn't have the ability to grow food. Not much, anyway. And he knew they didn't have the ability to have much livestock. So before he makes this deal, this shows you his wisdom, he thinks, I know how I'll get this guy to jump on this deal. I know how I'll get this guy to take the deal. Because he's like, if I give them the money they want and throw in food, a precious resource to them, they'll probably not turn it down. So he went into this with kind of insider trading knowledge. He knew that that was what that community desperately needed. Can you imagine if four months ago you knew that people were going to go out their mind and be, be hoarding toilet paper? What would you have invested in? Toilet paper. You know, if you'd have known that, you know, that hand sanitizer was going to become like platinum, right? You probably would have invested in that, right? Well, it, it's kind of the same thing. He knew in advance what was going to be the best you know, the, the, the best trading stock he could have with King Haram. So he used that resource. So you get to see his wisdom here. So when he makes this, makes this deal, he makes this, you know, this huge offer of annually bringing food into King Haram, and he just jumps on it because he loves the chance. That's probably one of the reasons he was praising God. He's like, man, that takes care of a lot of my worries of always trying to find, you know, produce to bring in to my kingdom because he was giving him all this stuff every year. Now, the funny thing is, remember in chapter 4 when we talked about all the food it took for Solomon's house? Remember, it was just ridiculous amounts of food. Well, what he promised to Haram was one-fifth of what it took for his household. But to show you how excessive Solomon and all his provisions were, I mean, King Haram was tickled to death. He thought he hit the food jackpot, the food lotto here 
because he was going to send that much food his way, and it wasn't even a fifth of what Solomon used for his own house. Okay, now let's move on. 1 Kings 5.13. It says, Then King Solomon conscripted a a labor force of 30,000 men from all Israel. Now that's important. These were just from Israel, right? He sent them to Lebanon in shifts. 10,000 every month so that each man would be one month in Lebanon and two months at home. Okay, now Adoniram was in charge of the labor force. Solomon also had 70,000 common laborers, 80,000 quarry workers uh, in the hill country, and 3,600 foremen to supervise the work. Uh, At the king's command, they quarried large blocks of high-quality stone and shaped them to make the foundation of the temple. I mean, they actually cut and designed every stone like prefabbed and then put it together at the temple, which is amazing for this time frame, right? Uh, Verse 18 says, Men from the city of Gebal helped Solomon and Haram's builders prepare timber and stone for the temple. So 1 Kings 5, 13 through 18 is all about finding labor, right? All the labors for this project of building the temple. Now, how he got this labor force together was really wise, but it was also kind of groundbreaking, which is why I titled this message Groundbreaking. Because what Solomon did was he didn't want to be an unpopular king. And if he were, if he were to just to walk into Israel and say, all you men are going to help me build this kingdom. Imagine the unrest that would arise among the people if he just came in and forced all the men to basically be slaves and build this temple. That's not how he did this. Now, the, the, the labor force of 30,000 that were from Israel, okay, he did something very, very, you know, very different for this time. The way he conscripted, I cannot say that word, conscripted those men was really important. First of all, he only conscripted about a fourth of the population of men in Israel. Okay, so he didn't go after everybody, which that was smart, right? And of the 30,000 men, of these 30,000 men, right? They worked in shifts. He didn't make them all work at the same time. They worked a really cool swing shift that I really wish I could work, right? And we'll talk about that here in a minute, right? And what he did to select those 30,000 men was he did what we would consider a draft. Basically, he drafted the 30,000 men from the population, okay? So they probably weren't really happy, But they did have some pretty good working conditions because here was the deal. The laborers were organized into one-month, 10,000-man shifts. So there was always at least 10,000 Israelis working on this project at one time. Always. And so what would happen was, since there were 30,000 men and there were 10,000-man shifts, you would work for one month, and then you'd be off for two months. Who would like to have that deal at work? I mean, think about it. Can you imagine? Yeah, it would stink being at your factory or your store or whatever for one month. But for two months, you'd be digging that deal. You know what I mean? Two months. And the reason he did that, and this shows his, his wisdom way ahead of time, uh, was that he realized by doing that, those men would get the time they needed with their families, and that would keep their morale up. I mean, if you knew, all I got to do is finish this month, and I am off for two months, how would your morale be? I mean, think about that right, and still paid the same as everybody else, right, so he knew that would keep their morale up, but he also knew that that would take away the argument of them saying, you can't draft me, I've got farms, I've got business obligations, he was saying, listen, have somebody else take care of it for a month, 
because I'm only making you work one out of every three months. For two months, you can see your family. You can take care of all your business obligations. You can prepare for your next month in those two months that you're off. So it's actually really wise how he did that. And by doing that, he didn't have a lot of trouble out of his Israeli workers that he brought up there, right? Now, he also had 150,000 other laborers. Okay, so we're up to about 180,000 laborers just, just this far, right? And these men were not from Israel. Now, there's a lot of people that want to discuss where they came from. Um, that, you know, Israel had a lot of people that were not, you know, native living in their lands. But a lot, of the, a lot of the Canaanite countries that they defeated in battle, they would take their men, right, and, and make them tribute slaves. You ever heard of that, tribute slaves? Okay, basically what it was was kind of like indentured servitude to us. They could work their way into citizenship. Okay, so it wasn't as bad as a normal slave, not that any slavery is good, but, but they could work their way into citizenship by being a tribute slave. So a lot of them were probably... Uh, the, those people that were tribute slaves, I imagine anyway. And somehow, he got all these people to work together, right, peacefully. And to get something done, he got them to do that. Now, it says he had 3,600 foremen. 3,600 foremen. That's roughly one foreman for every 42 people. You see his wisdom there? I mean, he's going, listen... There's no way that we can control that many people unless we narrow the scope of accountability and get to where they can actually be watched. So he had 3,600 foremen watching over him, so about one to every 42 people. Now, those of you who have been in management and know what a production report is, can you imagine Solomon going over 3,600 foremen's production reports every month? Can you imagine that? I mean, he still had a huge, huge you know, obligation himself to deal with. But I can't even imagine what he had to deal with. I mean, those of you who have been in management know what I'm talking about. Can you imagine the whining he heard from those foremen? Can you imagine the foremen who thought they could do it better? I mean, just imagine for a second what he had to deal with, right? So this shows us again his wisdom and just how he organized all this because good leaders know when a project is just too big for him. Okay, I don't know if you've ever worked for that person who just refuses to get help. They want to do everything themselves, so it always ends up being a big train wreck. Anybody ever work for the control freak? Anybody here, the control freak? Say, you better raise your hand. (laughs) Right? Sometimes it's hard. But he wasn't like that. He was really, really wise. He knew this project was just too big. He knew that if he tried to take it all on himself and watch over everything and do all the accounting and trying to keep everybody busy, that this would drive him crazy. Good leaders know when a project is too big, right? And obviously Solomon was becoming an amazing leader because good leaders choose good leaders and let them lead. I don't know if you've ever been appointed to a position and then your boss micromanages you to death. Anybody ever been there? And you start thinking to yourself, why... Why did you hire me and give me a raise if you're going to micromanage everything I do? Solomon didn't do that. He said, each one of you is in charge of 42 people. Take care of business, okay? I mean, I got 700 wives. I got things to do, right? Can you imagine? Can you imagine his honeydew list? Lord have mercy. But so he allowed them to lead. That's a sign of a good leader. Now, in all reality, I probably, I highly doubt that Solomon really had any issues with his foreman see in this day and age 
We have problems from our foreman because we can't kill them. I'm just saying. In that day and age, he was the king. So he could kill his subordinates if he didn't like them or didn't like what they had to say. So maybe he didn't get as many complaints as it, as it appears he would get, right? But I'm sure he got his share. Now, all that being said, there, I, I wanted to get to this one point. I wanted to get you through the details so I could talk, give, you know, put some time towards this last point here. And that is, have you ever wondered why it was so important for them to have a tabernacle or a temple? And the tabernacle was temporary, something that they, they could move with them as they were nomadic, right, or as they moved around. And this temple was, was a place that was going to be more permanent, right? You ever wonder why was it so important? Why was that such a big deal? See, the first tabernacle was built by Moses, and it was also called the Tent of Witness, okay? And God gave Moses very specific instructions. He gave him a very specific pattern to follow to build that, that tabernacle, and Moses followed it. Well, when Solomon built the temple, he basically followed the exact same pattern that God gave Moses for the temporary house of God, or the tabernacle. He, gave him, he pretty much followed the exact same pattern or blueprint. Right Now, here's the deal. The, the tabernacle and the temple were intended to teach people something. They were intended to teach people about worship. Okay, this is very, very important. This is going to come up later. All right, this is God's way of saying, listen, there is a right way to worship me. Because everything you do in the process of worshiping me is pointing to something else. So there is a right way to worship me. It was very important that he did that. And he also wanted to show them, and he wanted a constant reminder among them, that they were incurably sinful, and they would need forgiveness. And the tabernacle was that reminder, right? And so the temple would be that reminder, this permanent temple, right? But here's the thing. God never intended for people to think that a structure could confine him. And, and they actually kind of started thinking that. He didn't want them to think that, that he could literally be, because they call it the house of God, he didn't want them to think that they would have him caged there, that he would be bound to them only, that they would be trapped there. He wanted them to know, listen, no house can actually hold me. And if you look at what Stephen said in Acts chapter 7, starting in verse 46, he does a great job explaining this. He says, David found favor in God's sight and asked that he might find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. However, the Most High, listen, does not dwell in houses made by what? By human hands. As the prophet says, he's getting ready to quote Isaiah here. He says, heaven is my throne and earth is, my, is the footstool of my feet. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what place is there for my repose? Was it not my hand which made all these things? So the great martyr Stephen was actually quoting Isaiah here. And he was giving them a scenario where God confronted Israel through Isaiah. And what he confronted them about was their national arrogance. They had nationally become arrogant. And the source of their arrogance was the tabernacle, believe it or not. Okay, that was the source of their arrogance. Because they started thinking because they had the temple, they had ownership of God. Have you ever seen those churches that think they're the only way to heaven? You know what I mean? They're going to be so, I can't wait. Till they get to heaven. I just, I want to walk up to them and say, ha! You were wrong. 
No, but I mean, they believe that's, I think of them when I see this, because they thought it gave them ownership of God because they had the house that kept his presence. Can you imagine? And they also started thinking that because they had ownership of God through the temple or tabernacle, because they had that, that God had to bless and protect them no matter what. You see how their arrogance starts to creep in? God decides to dwell among his people, and what do his people do? Try to own him and use him. That's what was happening. So when he was quoting Isaiah, this was Isaiah talking about a confrontation between God and Israel. He said, seriously, you really think you can build a house that's going to hold me? You really think that the, the creator of the universe that gives, makes everything possible that is possible, you really think you can build a place that's going to keep me under your thumb? You really think that's going to happen, right? And they did. And as you can see, they totally missed the whole point of the temple because they became arrogant. They, lo- they missed the whole point of the temple. And they even started worshiping the things in the temple and the things in the tabernacle before the temple was made more than they would worship God. And I call that becoming religious. Okay, now I know a lot of you, this will make you mad. Don't email me. I can't stand religion, and neither could God. Because religion is man's ways. You see what I mean? Religion started moving in here. Because they started loving the things in the temple, and they started loving the rituals. They love their rituals. You ever been, you ever, anybody here raised in a church that was based on rituals? I'm not going to ask you to tell me which one, but I was. Okay, ritual was very important. They love their rituals. They love their festivals, right? Because they could go and, you know, one could act more righteous than another and judge people. I mean, everybody's dream is a believer, right? They love their festivals. They love their ceremonies. What started happening was they started loving all those things more than they love God. Right? More than they actually love true worship. Right? So, jump forward to the New Testament. This was what, when Jesus straightened them out on this topic, the fact that they were nationally arrogant, the fact that they had traded in the true meaning of the temple, the fact that they had become more religious than spiritual, when Jesus called them out on this, this is what got him killed. Do you realize that? Calling them out is what got him killed. Look at this. Jesus teaches this. Now tell me, this, ain't, this is just, this is gangster. I love how Jesus does this. Okay, because he's going to tell them the true meaning of the temple while he's standing in the temple courts. I think that's awesome. So he's like, while I'm standing here in the temple that you have no idea what, really mean, what it really means, I'm going to explain to you what the temple is. Okay, John chapter 2, starting in verse 18. It says, the Jews then said to him, what sign do you show us as your authority for doing these things? Jesus answered and said to them, or he answered them, destroy this temple and in three days what? I will raise it up. Those are the magic words in the eyes of the Jews. These are the words that led to Jesus' death. When the false witnesses come, this is what they're going to bring up as evidence that he thinks he's God, which he was. But this is what they're going to use to, to have him put to death. Verse 20, Then Jesus, or the, uh, the Jews then said, It took 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days. I could talk about that forever, but we're not going to. Okay? 
He says, will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of what? His body. Remember that. He was speaking of the temple of his body. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. So let me set the scene for you before Jesus does this. He walks into the temple, and there's money changers in the temple. And what that means is you ever go to an airport and you exchange your currency? That's basically what it was. But the money changers in the temple were cheating people on the exchange. And you can bet the priests were getting a kickback. I'm just saying, another sermon, but you can bet they were getting a kickback. Right? So they were getting ripped off on their exchanging of their currencies and exchanging of their money. And then they would have to go, and believe me, they were not going to have the right sacrifice because they would conveniently have that for sale in aisle 9 of the temple. Right? And so after they got ripped off on the exchange, they would get ripped off in purchasing the sacrifice because they were ripping them off everywhere they turned. So Jesus walks in to the temple that they completely had lost sight of its purpose. He walks in there, already troubled, and what does he see? Scammers everywhere, telemarketers everywhere, right? All over the place. And so this, he flips over their tables and takes a whip and runs them out. And you guys can try to spiritualize that. Oh, Jesus wouldn't use a whip. Yeah, he did. He took a whip and chased them out with that whip. I mean, may not sound spiritual, but cool as heck, just saying. Runs them out of the temple. This happens, right? And the fact that they were allowing this to go on in God's temple should have been enough evidence that they had lost their focus. That should have been enough evidence that they didn't even know what that temple meant or stood for anymore because they were allowing all this to happen in the house of God. And Jesus knew his time was short, so he wanted them to know the true meaning of the tabernacle and of the temple that Solomon built, and in that temple, he wanted them to understand what all that meant, right? So it's very, very important. When he was crucified and resurrected, that true meaning would become clear to everybody, okay? But that's another message. But the tabernacle and the temple were supposed to prepare people for Jesus. Had they used the temple the way they were supposed to? Had they looked at what the temple was trying to teach them and taken it to heart? They would have had no problem with Jesus because that tabernacle, that temple, everything it did pointed to Jesus, right? I mean, it just pointed to him, right? It was supposed to prepare him for it. See, the temple was supposed to remind people how sinful mankind is, and it certainly did. How did it do that? Well, because there was this sacrifice for this sin, this sacrifice for that sin. They were constantly having to have a priest go make sacrifices for them because they were constantly sinning. So the tabernacle and the temple was reminding them, hey, idiot, you can't stop sinning. That's, it. That's the first thing it was supposed to do, right? It was also supposed to reveal that only a perfect sacrifice can remove sin. Now, they had messed that whole system up. But originally, if you brought anything other than your best, it was unacceptable. You were supposed to bring the fattest lamb, I don't know anything about livestock, but lamb, bullock, whatever. The one that can produce the most, the one that would probably make the best steaks. Right? You were supposed to bring the best you had to sacrifice for God. And that would remove sin only temporarily at the time. Because that animal would have died, it wasn't eternal. But it was a picture of something to come. Right? But as time went on, they started going, I'm not going to take the best one. I might take the second best one. And as time went on, they started going, you know that one that's sick that has no hair? Let's take that one. 
That's where they ended up. Okay, But they were supposed to know that only a perfect sacrifice can remove sin. That's what it was supposed to be teaching them. And Jesus was that perfect sacrifice, and John told them about it, and they didn't listen. Look at John chapter 1, starting in verse 29. It says, The next day John the Baptist saw Jesus coming to him and said, Behold, what? The Lamb of God that what? That takes away the sin of the world. See, if... If they had been doing what they were supposed to be doing, had they been learning from the tabernacle and the temple like they were supposed to be, when John said that, that would have got everyone's attention. They would have said, oh my gosh, that's the sacrifice that all these sacrifices were pointing to. There's the perfect sacrifice, the perfect Lamb of God. There is our eternal sacrifice. But they had lost focus on that. Right now, the Jews were also taught that they had to be cleansed to approach a holy God. So they were really into all their, all their ritual cleansings. Listen, God wasn't doing that because he was a germ freak. God was doing that to show them how dirty they were and how difficult it was for them to be clean. But he was pointing them to the fact that the blood of Jesus would come, and when they believed, it would be applied to them, and they would be eternally clean through that. That's what it was supposed to point to. Hebrews 9.13 says, For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more... Will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve a living God? See, had they been paying attention to what the temple was teaching, they would have realized their eternal cleansing had arrived in the person of Jesus. Right? And the temple also had priests. They had to have a priest to represent them before God. They could not go to him themselves. They had to have a priest. That is not the way God wanted it. God wanted to show them that they had one coming that would represent them before God. Had the priest not got corrupt, they would have drawn that picture for people. Because when Jesus arrived, he became the eternal high priest. And the priesthood is dead at that moment for all men because Jesus became the high priest. Hebrews chapter 4, starting in verse 14. It says, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Let me add some context to that. The priests were judgmental and condescending, acting like they never sinned when people would come to him. Jesus wasn't. He understood. Verse 16, Therefore let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. So I could go on and on and on, but all of these things were present in the temple and the tabernacle and were designed to teach them about Jesus. All of them pointed to Jesus. You can't find one example, one example of something that was going on in that temple that was supposed to be going on that didn't point to Jesus, and they missed it because they got religious. Right? They turned into religious people rather than faithful people. Right? They got sidetracked by their religion, and they got sidetracked by their traditions, and they missed the whole... They might as well have not had the tabernacle constructed everywhere they went, because they lost sight of it. They might as well not have had the temple built. Solomon could have been wasting his time, because they lost sight of it, what it was really for. Right? Now, before I close, I, I think it's important that we talk about this, but we need to be careful that we don't become focused on our religion too much also. And you may say, oh, we're not that way. But think about it for a second, right? We have to be really careful this can happen because sometimes we confuse religious obligations with worship. You know what I mean? 
That means sometimes we go to church because we're supposed to. Now, I know, I know I'm not the only one this has happened to, where you get up and you're like, I just don't want to go. That happened to anybody? But you think, well, I got to go. Got to go to church every week, or, you know, God throws lightning bolts. Better go to church, or everybody will judge me. Better go to church, or everybody will. Anybody ever think that way? Take down names, Kevin. No, I'm just kidding. Everybody has that thought every once in a while. But when you start going to church because you're supposed to, then you're becoming like the Jews who missed the point of the tabernacle. We don't come to church because we're supposed to. We come to church because we get to. And there are people in China who would love to have the opportunity to freely do this. We come to church to hear the word of God, to learn about God. We come to church to fellowship with other believers, to be strengthened and encouraged by other believers. We come to church to worship God for all that he's done and to let him know publicly with our fellow believers that we love him for everything he's done. We come to church with the hope that other people will come in and learn to love him too. We get to go to church. We don't have to go to church. You see how that religion can, t- can start sneaking in there? And you don't, even, you don't even recognize it? Listen, church is it's so important. But sometimes, even going to church regularly can be a problem. Because church is important, but it shouldn't replace your personal relationship with Jesus. And I've had people, I've asked them, how often do you read? I don't, I just listen to you. On Sundays, and I'm like, well, as majestic as my voice is. And despite the eye candy that you obviously get to enjoy every week. You need to have your own personal relationship with God. You know, I cannot, why are you making me a priest again? That's gone. You don't need me to talk to God. You don't need me for God to talk to you. I'm here to teach you. But you know where the real relationship happens? In here. And if, if you go to church and say, hey, I'm not, I don't have to read, I don't have to do any of that stuff, because I went to church, I'm good, I'm covered for a week. Then we become religious like them, and we miss the whole point. And sometimes we get caught up in works like they got caught up in their traditions, and like they got caught up in their festivals and their ceremonies. Right? Listen, volunteering is so important to do things at the church, and believe me, we need them, and it's a good thing. I'm not knocking that, so all the, all the heads of the departments don't kill me. I'm not knocking that. We need volunteers. It's very, very important, but it can't replace living your faith in the world every day. That's more important than what you do here. It is. It's just more important. Right? See, like the Jews with the temple, sometimes we miss the point. We often think, like they do, we get arrogant. Because we're believers, God will protect and bless us no matter what. I've heard people misquote Romans 8.28 my whole life. Right? Well, the Bible says God works everything out for us. I'm like, yeah, it doesn't say that. It says God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God. Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. He said, to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. It does not say, become a believer, do whatever you want, and I'll bless you no matter what, and I'll protect you. That's not what it says. Right? But we've become arrogant like that. I mean, we think because... Because we're believers, God is going to bless us, and, and all we have to do is show up and go through the motions, and God will bless us. Doesn't that sound a lot like the Jews? They thought they owned him because they had the tabernacle, that, because they had the temple, right? We thought, well, all we got to do, go to church, just like they thought, well, we got him trapped now, right? Listen, we forget church is where we worship, but church is not where we live our faith. 
Now listen to me, I know that sounds strange. Church is where we worship, but it's not where we live our faith. Listen, there's nothing you can do in these chairs that's going to make anybody else believe or not believe more in Jesus than they already have. Right? You don't come here to live your faith. You come here to, to worship. Hopefully that includes you living your faith. I don't want you coming and decking your neighbor or anything. Right? But you know when a believer's real job and obligation kicks in? When we walk out those doors into a world that needs to hear from us. When we walk out there, it's important that we live our faith out there. It's important we come here to worship, but that does not replace our obligation to go out there and live it for people and be a light and a testimony. Sometimes we do, uh, when I see believers who aren't living it, you'd be shocked how many times they'd say, what, what do you want from me? I go to church. You see what I mean? It's almost exactly like what the Jews were doing with the temple. Right? Now listen, so what we do... What we say, are you ready for this? What we post matters. It matters. And I'll tell you what, what we do, what we say, and what we post is what truly reveals the depth and sincerity of our faith. If your life is to find arguments online and argue with people, the depth and sincerity of your faith are in question. They're in question, I'm sorry, because Jesus didn't walk around looking for reasons to fight with people. Looking for reasons to judge people. Looking for reasons to lift themselves up and put other people down. Looking for reasons to brag. Jesus came to seek and save those who were lost and to show them the love that only a real Savior could show them. That's what he came for, and if we're going to be like him, that's what we have to be like. See, Solomon built a temple to teach people how to truly worship and truly serve God. Right? And faith in Jesus transforms us into the temple because now we are carrying God in us. Now we are his temples. Right? So now, now we need to be the people who teach others how to love and worship God. Just like the temple was supposed to do for them, we should be doing for this world. That's what this should be pointing to us. Listen, Solomon used groundbreaking methods to make sure that temple got built and got built right. We should be using groundbreaking methods to reach people and find ways to show people love even when we don't think they deserve it. That's what we should be doing. And that's what, if we look at it as we go through this, everybody thinks, gosh, this is one of those chapters with so many details, it's not important. It's very important. Because God doesn't give us something that's not important. He's saying, look how much time I put into that temple to teach people about me. Look how much time I put into you to teach people about me. It's the same thing. I'm going to go ahead and close there. I'm going to ask if you would to please bow your heads. If this is your first time, we always like to give an invitation. And if there's someone here or listening or watching online who doesn't know Jesus as their Savior, it's not my job to judge, and no one can tell by looking at you. And I don't call people up front, and I don't do any of that stuff. We're not looking for notches. I just want to pray for you. If there's someone here who's not sure where they stand with God, while every head's bowed and every eye's closed, just make eye contact and put your head right back down, and I'm going to pray for you. Bless those people. And I'm not going to point you out. I'm not going to chase you down after church. And if you're listening online, God knows your heart. But listen, if you, if you can hear his voice enough to know that he's revealing to you you're not sure, then... He's calling you to take that step of faith and believe. 
And if you make that decision today, I just, I just, I just hope that you'll contact us or a good Christian organization near you. But today we're also going to pray for believers. Because, you know, one thing that this pandemic has taught us is we don't need a building to be a church. And we don't need to be a building or have a building to share the truth of the gospel. It's possible, no matter what our situation is. I just want us to remember that and to continue to be the church. Let's pray. God, I thank you so much for all that you do. I thank you for your word. I thank you for the truth and the promises we find in it. I thank you most of all, God, that that you made a promise that we could never deserve. And that promise was that if we would believe that what Jesus did was enough to guarantee our eternal life, you promised you would give it to us. No matter who we are, what we've done, what other people think of us, what our reputation is, if we would just believe, you would cleanse us and make us one of yours. I just pray that that whatever's holding people back, you would remove it so that they could make that decision today. And God, for those of us who are believers, sometimes we forget the mercy, the love, the grace that you've shown us. And sometimes we start to get religious. And sometimes we look at privileges that we have, like reading your word and coming to church to worship and sharing our faith as obligations. God, don't let us be those religious people that don't make you appear as awesome as you are. Let us always be those thankful people that always reveal to everyone how grateful we are for your amazing presence in our life. Let us be those that are beacons of light to this dark world, especially in these difficult times. We just pray, God, as we leave here today that you would keep us safe. Let our hearts fill with your love and overflow to those people we come in contact with. And Lord, if you don't return to take us home before we meet again, let us come back together at least one more time and give you all the praise, honor, and glory you're so worthy of. We just thank you for all things, and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.